0: Hi, my beautiful people. This is me, Jenny D, from Spill With Me, Jenny D Podcast, and wait till you hear about my friend, Sean. I saw him on LinkedIn, and I said, wait a minute, we're Westminster grads. What is all these accomplishments that you have, Sean? I mean, I was so impressed. Sean is voted the top eight most inspirational people in history. Hello? I mean, right there, that just tells you we need to talk to
1: you. <laughs> one, one, of, one
0: of the topics. Oh, right. Yeah, I thought you were the only one.
2: No, <laughs> no, uh, One of the topics, not me. That, that's, that's going pretty
0: That's That's going to go too far. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm 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 like talking you up here. <laughs> well, he also is a philanthropist. It's really hard for me to say that word, you know. What word. Did I say it right? Philanthropist. Exactly. Yes, yes, okay. Author and keynote speaker. I mean, he's wrote some books. So we're going to get into this, Sean. I want you to talk to my listeners and tell them who is Sean Swarner? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs>
1: I <laughs> really, wow, how far back do you want to go? Like well, you know, My parents got together nine months later, dun-dun.
0: Uh, yeah, oh, please, we don't want to go that far. <laughs> we only have so much time, Sean, Jeez. But, no, really tell us, um, because a lot of people wouldn't know this, and I didn't know this going to the same college. I mean, you were a freshman. I was a senior, so I didn't know who you were really because, you know, I didn't talk to those freshmen boys. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But um, tell us how you got diagnosed. At a young age, with cancer.
1: Well, it was it was really interesting. Um, and by interesting, meaning I, I had no symptoms. I had nothing. I didn't have night sweats. I I was perfectly perfectly normal. I was. Uh, a young boy growing up in Willard, Ohio. I mean, if you if you know anything about Ohio, a lot of it's farm country, and my backyard was a cornfield or a bean field, depending on the season. Oh wow! So, I, yeah, I mean, I was I was completely normal until about thirteen years old, and uh, they they wouldn't have even found the first cancer uh, unless I was playing basketball after lunch, and it's even crazier that. It, normally um, I would scarf down my food as quickly as possible, yeah. run to the gym, you know, to 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 have fun uh, right. for the 30 minutes I think that we had lunch. Recess. Was um, yeah. <laughs> that?
0: Was that recess?
1: Yeah kind of like kind of like recess. And they used to have this pegboard where you like look, this giant piece of wood plastered on the wall with little pegs that you'd hold in your hand to crawl up. I remember
0: those. I remember (laughs) those.
1: Yes, but the teacher for some reason didn't want to get the pegs so I played basketball um, instead. And as I was going out for layup, I came down and, and my knee snapped, and that triggered every other joint in my body over the next, uh, course of the next day to swell up. So I, like two days later, I looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. My knee was swollen, my shoulders were swollen, my face was swollen, my elbows were swollen. So if I wouldn't have had that first injury, going back to if, if I wouldn't have, uh, if I would have been on the pegboard and I didn't play basketball, they wouldn't have found the injury.
0: You're right. Which, now- we what, just
1: brought on the first uh, cancer.
0: Okay, so tell me what happened. So you you fell down, got injured. They took you to the hospital.
1: Thinking they you to the local
2: hospital first? Right.
0: was it did you think oh it's just a sprain or I just twisted something?
1: Well, they, they thought it was pneumonia. You know, and it's it's really difficult to to cure cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. I wasn't getting any better. Yes. Right. You know, but I, I, I loved
2: the 8th grade, you know, 13. I, I loved the attention. Like, the cheerleaders were coming in. They were bringing mm-hmm. cards and
1: balloons. and am like, oh, this is fantastic. And I love <laughs> this attention. But right. I wasn't getting any better. So then they took me to Columbus, Ohio, after a bunch of blood tests. And that's when they diagnosed me with advanced stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, my God! And they told my parents, your firstborn son's going to be dead in three months.
0: Oh, my gosh, Sean. I mean, and you were... Still, you were 13 years old when this happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I really didn't know what was going on at the time. But my parents, you know, they like, well, you know, this is what's going on. It's the C word back then. It was just like, you know, they told me, Sean, you're, you're sick. They didn't really tell me that you have cancer. They just said, you're sick. But the way they framed it is, in a way, I, th- I wish doctors and nurses and practitioners would do things now. My parents didn't say, hey, Sean, you have cancer.
2: This is what we're going to do. It's treatable, blah, blah, blah. Right. They said, you have a condition.
1: This is what we're going to do. And, oh, by the way, it's cancer. So I didn't mentally check out when I first heard that word.
0: Right, because you had no idea what it meant. Yeah, no clue. But I I, I did everything I could in my power
1: to get by it, get through it, get over it, get whatever, whatever I had to do to go and live a normal life. And I think at that time, I was... Probably the only kid in school who actually wanted to be in school because I was in the hospital so much.
0: Right, that is true. Were you going through chemo?
1: I went through a, about a year of chemotherapy. I gained 60, 70 pounds, lost all the hair in my body, lost my friends. I lost everything. My life literally was on hold. It was just on pause. Like, it was over.
0: I'm so sorry. I can't even but imagine. I, it, it was, you know, look, looking back at it, and to be honest with you, because I was so young I think it was a blessing and older being an adult now I was gonna say more mature being an adult now <laughs> I
2: think it was more difficult on my parents than it was on me because I was I was malleable I was I was adjustable I could I could go with the flow it became my normal what what I didn't enjoy was how it changed me physically right you know, I, I remember I remember
1: looking in the mirror and, and literally seeing myself 60, 70 pounds overweight and having no recollection or, or, or not recognizing who was looking back at me.
0: Oh, that's awful. How did you get that weight? Is it from the chemo?
1: It was from the prednisone. So the prednisone is a steroid right. that they put me on to maintain my weight. They put me on an you know, all you could eat diet. So I, I literally ballooned up. And then one day, doctor said, oh, you're in remission. Go have fun. You know, and, oh. and I had to go on back on a diet. I had to figure out how to move forward because every evening I would go to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning.
0: Oh, my God. So how long did this go on? I'm sorry? How long was is this going on in your high school years?
1: It went on for a year the first time. Um, I was in remission for about a year, year and a half, and then going in for a checkup for the first cancer, they found a completely unrelated second cancer, and it wasn't from the the, the treatment from the first one. It was totally unrelated.
0: Oh my gosh! How old were you when this happened?
1: Almost 16. I remember because I was the only person in Ohio who actually got my driver's license with a hat on because I was bald and I knew the person who was doing the pictures for the driver's licenses and I was the only person in the history of Ohio who was allowed to have a driver's license picture taken with a hat on. To cover wow, that's head.
2: true.
0: You're right. I wonder. I think that's still a rule today, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Wow. So when you went in and you found out that, now where was this cancer?
1: Well, this one was on my, like the subplural lining of my right lung. And I'll, I'll explain what that, what that actually means. Yes. If, if you look at your, th- if you think of your lungs as like a balloon inside of a balloon, it was between the two balloons. And it was underneath my ribs, so every time I, I I actually remember, um, it was like maybe a Sunday, and my checkup was on Wednesday, and I remember sitting in my living room watching television and breathing, whenever I took a deep breath in, it literally felt like someone was jabbing me in my right side with a knife.
0: I can't imagine. That much. Wow. So you could was it hard for you to walk and breathe and do any exercise?
1: breathing absolutely and my parents saw me in pain like well you know his, his uh, checkups in a couple days we'll figure it out then and when we got there they did an x-ray you know chest x-ray they found in fact in one day they found a a tumor on an x-ray that was the size of a, a golf ball um, they did a needle biopsy where they threaded the needle through my ribs to aspirate part of the tumor they took out a lymph node from the left side of my neck they put in a hip and catheter which is like a permanent IV Oh my gosh. they did a thoracotomy which is when they cracked open my ribs removed the tumor they put a drainage tube in and they started chemotherapy all in all in less than twenty four hours.
0: Oh my That's how gosh! It, how dire it was. Jesus, and you had no idea what was going on.
1: And this time around, it was it was just such a whirlwind. You know, but it, eventually, I was I was diagnosed with a type of cancer that literally affects three out of a million people with a prognosis of six
2: percent. Oh no. Yeah. So this time around, the doctors. Uh, they they told my parents that they had 14 days to
0: live. Oh my gosh! Your parents—they've been going they, through. You know, first it was three months. Now it's 14 days. I mean, ugh, the prayers. It
1: was, I, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I remember laying in the hospital bed. Um, a, a, a man of the cloth came in, and I was I was writing my last rites. They wanted to put me in hospice. They, it was that was it. Oh, you know, they, the hospital wanted me to write out a living will, and I looked at my mom and dad joking, because like, I have a younger brother, I was like, well, get, my brother's going to get my hand-me-downs anyhow. Like, what <laughs> if it was a
0: hospital I know, I know. it's true. Oh, what a, uh, That is so, I, I can't even imagine what you and your family were going through at that time.
2: Well, I was going to say, look, looking back at
1: it, it, it was a situation where whenever you're in something that really challenges Your faith—it really challenges who you are. You can let it destroy you, or you can let it build you up and make you stronger. That's true. And I, I think that we, in every situation, we might not have a choice of what we're in, but we always have a choice in how we react to it.
0: I love that. I love that. Yeah, how it's how you react to it. I mean, Absolutely. Were you in good spirit? I mean, I, I can't even imagine You know, were you thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to enjoy these next couple of days, or you know, how did you well,
1: feel? I, I remember, because I, I think it's in, in my first book, where I was going through my mom's journal, because she kept a journal when I was sick, and probably the most difficult part, the most emotional part of writing my book was transcribing her journal. You looking at what she went through and there was a section where I talk about how in her journal she mentioned the two of us looking outside the hospital window You're just standing there, the snow was falling and I looked at her and I said if it's my time I've had a good life
0: oh jeez oh gosh
1: you know, so I, I can only imagine, like I said, what my parents went through. You know, imagine imagine your son looking at you and saying, hey, you know, I, if, if it's my time to go, if it's my time to die, I've had a really good life.
0: I can't imagine that. I can't. And, she, you know, for her to write all this down, like, day by day of what she was going through with you, you know, that's amazing. Uh, it probably helped her by writing it down, you know.
1: Oh, sure. And, and, and people who, you know, when, when things... When traumatic situations happen in life and, and you think that it's such a, a dire place, you have to talk about it, you have to get it out. You can't internalize this stuff because even now, they're, they're showing with scientific research,
2: stress causes migraines, stress causes things physically in your body, and
1: they're, they've proven now that oftentimes stress can potentially even cause cancer. I'm not saying that was my, my reason for it, but whenever you are stressed out, whenever something does happen in your life, you have to talk about it with your significant, significant other, a, a professional, or right. a good friend. Get it
2: out.
0: You do. You have to talk about it. And I feel like this, this is a way of you know, me telling people that you know I have a platform for you. I have a platform for you to talk about it because guess what? Your story might be somebody else's story. You know, I feel like that you're not, you might not be the only one out there that has gone through something like this. So tell us now, um, after you went through her journal and you were writing, you started writing your book, but before that, when you were in high school, I mean, what happened? Was it like a miracle that, you know, you were doing better or?
1: Kind of. I mean, I honestly think it was. Well, backing up a little bit, yes. I went through roughly
2: three months of intense chemo, a month of radiation therapy, and then ten more months of chemo. So, when I'm talking to you right now, I only have one functioning
1: lung. Like I have both of them, but only one of one of them completely works. Okay. Um, but the other times when I was in the treatment for um, the chemotherapy, the three months and the ten months that I mentioned, because the treatments were so harsh and because no one's ever had Hodgkins and Askin sarcoma before, I'm, I'm the only person in the history who's ever. Had these two say
0: that again honey so you had Hodgkin's and you had
1: Hodgkin's and Askin's it's a branch of Ewing sarcoma oh I've so never heard of that it's, it's, it's very very rare in, in fact the chances I did some number crunching a while back the chances of me surviving both Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma is roughly the same as winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers
0: oh my gosh I mean just hearing those statistics that is uh, wow you're like a walking miracle really
1: Living, breathing, walking miracle. Well, absolutely.
0: Oh, God bless. So yeah. it's, so that is rare. I mean, to have both of them. Now, you were in remission with the Hodgkin's, right? You were...
1: I was in complete remission. Yeah. But the good, the good thing about getting the second cancer is that the, the medicine and how they treated the Hodgkin's, there were some things that they were going to use to treat the Askin's. So if there was any residual... Left over from the Hodgkins that was going to be taken care of from the treatment for the Askins. Okay. So I'm, I'm always, even then, I'm, I'm always looking at the positive side of things like, well, I have this. If there's anything left from the Hodgkins, then we're going to get rid of it.
0: Right. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. So um, you're going through all this chemo and stuff, and you're optimistic, and your parents are optimistic about your diagnosis now because it seems, is it working? It seems to be, well, of course it worked, but.
1: Yeah, so to answer your question earlier, you know, 14 days turned into 15 days, turned to 16 days, and just one day at a time. And Like I said earlier, oftentimes you don't have control of the situation, but you can always choose how you react to it. So I, I chose to have a good attitude, and I chose to have good days, and I chose to really embrace those good days. Did I have bad days? Absolutely. There were days I didn't want to get out of bed. There were days I was vomiting for 36 hours straight. Right. Yeah, you know, for the most part, I knew those those bad days were going to pass, just like anything else in, in life, you know. If you have a bad day, you feel down, you you know it's going to pass. Okay. You can hold on to those good days when you do have them.
0: Right. And it's okay to have a bad day. I think uh, a lot of us, I, you know, I you feel guilty or if you know in anybody's circumstance sometimes when we see someone like you that's been through so much and then we complain about something or I feel sorry for ourselves. It almost feels like we're being selfish, because I I should be grateful that I didn't have to go through two cancers like you or anything like that. But I think we all take our stress in different ways. Do you agree? I, I do, but also looking at it from a non judgmental lens,
1: you know, if you compare your struggles to someone else and you think, oh, that's great, everyone's struggle to them is real. You know, it, it could be, in looking at it from an, a, a mountain analogy, and you know, I'm sure we'll get to that because I've, I've climbed Everest, but, but everyone's mountain is different. You know, for me, it was cancer. For somebody else, it might be finding the motivation to get off the couch and exercise again or to walk around the block. I like you know, that. It's still, it, and it's still real to that person. So it's, it's very difficult to...
0: To compare yourself to others. One thing that my, my parents always taught me was to to not necessarily be the best, but be my best. Hmm, I like that. Be my be my best. Yeah. You have such good. You know, I can tell that's why you're a keynote speaker because you come up with all these things. It's so true. Now, were you able, Sean, to go to high school at all? Or I, I missed a year of school, but I audited a class. And back in 92, 93,
2: uh, when I was a junior, I should have been a senior, um, even auditing a class, the NOL, which is
1: Northern Ohio League, and the um, Ohio Athletic Association, OHAA,
2: they said that, you know, you're only allowed four years of of eligibility,
1: because I was also an athlete.
0: You were still an athlete? You were still an athlete? What were you doing?
1: I I was, well, when I had good days, I would go out and run. You know, running was my my outlet. Um, But I was also a swimmer.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. That's a great exercise for what you were going through, too, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, a week after a chemo treatment, I ran a 5K race.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Let me follow that up and, and tell you that I finished Ted last. <laughs> hey,
0: you can always say you did it. I can't say that I ever did. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you, Sean. Wait well, a minute. It's,
1: it, but it's, it's that challenge, you know, one step at a time. And, and going going back to the, the school the OHAA the regulating body for sports in Ohio even if I was
2: auditing a class and I was just with my, pr- my friends my peers in school they would have taken away my senior year of
1: eligibility for sports so my I would have been 18 and I would admit I would not have been able to compete in track and field my senior year of high school
0: oh no so what happened with that
1: well, my, my dad went down to Columbus and he uh, petitioned and he sat, he talked to this board of whoever it was. And uh, when he came out of the meeting, one of the uh, news reporters looked at me and goes, you know, you're dead, right? Like they never, they never um, uh, are lenient on things like this. But really? apparently it passed like nine, nine to ten, like ten to one or something like that. So I got an extra elig- semester of eligibility so I could come back and be more active in sports and I. A year later, I actually won my high school's track. My league tracked me the 800-meter run.
0: You won the 800-meter run?
2: Uh, At the half mile.
0: Oh, my goodness. That's wonderful. So you're already on your way to just, I'm, I'm doing it. When I want to do something, I'm putting all my efforts in it. I'm not going to let this stop me. Well, I mean, it goes back to the old adage that if, if you think something's possible or if you think something's not possible, you're right on both accounts. True. You know, and it goes the same for you.
1: But if, if, you can, if you can tap into and find a deeper underlying meaning for what you're doing, then you're going to have this, this sustainable empowerment forever. That's true. As opposed, as, as opposed to going after the the new car, the new house, the, the the raise, you know, that's that's fleeting. It's 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 temporary. But if you understand the deeper purpose and meaning behind it, you'll have more passion
2: to go after it.
0: Yeah, I I mean I love what you're saying. It's true for everyone. I mean, we have to take that leap and just try things because you don't know when your last day will be. Exactly. So now you go to Westminster.
1: That's right. That's, That's right. where things get interesting, and we won't talk about that too much because I was like Belushi from Animal House.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you went crazy. Well, I was a Zeta, so I guess I. <laughs> we had our fun. It was a small school in New Wilmington, and we had a lot of fun. Some good little restaurants like the Shortstop and things like that. And I'm surprised we didn't cross paths, but I wasn't a my senior year. I wasn't a part of like. The cafeteria. I had. I was living off campus. Was I living off campus? No, I wasn't because I had to live in the sorority house and it wasn't a sorority house because we couldn't have them in PA, but that's another story. <laughs> but yeah, I, you had your fun at Westminster. So what did you do? What was your degree?
1: I started off molecular biology. Yikes. So, yeah, uh, I know people can't see us, but thank God I'm smarter than I look. Um, <laughs> so I, I started off molecular bio, but because of the lifestyle I was living in college, and maybe one reason that we didn't ever really cross paths that much was because I was a swimmer, you know, up on deck in the water 6 a.m., and then in the afternoon we were doing two days. I mean, it's just my life was just consumed by that. Right. Um, but, it's, it's very difficult to to pass immunology and organic chemistry when you don't open a book and study for it. <laughs>
2: Well,
0: Sean, that would be... And listen, I, I can't say anything because there's no... Being a broadcast major, I didn't have to take all those. I had to take biology. That was it. <laughs> um, mass. But then I, I
1: switched to psychology. Um, the beginning of my junior year. So I pretty much had to take a lot of different classes over and uh, line up new classes, not take them over, but line up new classes after I declared a different major. And uh, my goal at that time was to be a psychologist
2: for cancer patients.
0: Oh, see, I love that. You knew what you wanted to, well, you don't know what you want to do when you're in college. I'm having that same thing with my son. He's changed majors because It's a little hard, and what you've been through, I mean, you don't know what to expect or what to do. So were you cancer-free at this point, or were you in remission for both?
1: I I was. I was cancer-free. I was in remission um, going in for my annual checkup, and I remember maybe about 10 years ago 20 years ago my parents told me that they told my roommate um who we were roommates for all four years of school uh to keep an eye on me because they didn't think i would make it through college
0: (sighs) oh my god god bless and you know what off the air listeners sean and i were talking and he never mentioned to the other students at our college that he had cancer
2: Right. Well, how,
1: like, how do you say you're dating somebody? How do you even bring it up? You know, right. hey, that's, you know, how's, how's your meal? Oh, I had cancer.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not say it like that, Sean, but you know, <laughs>
1: I mean, it's not a casual dinner conversation.
0: Right. I know. It's true. It's true. It's not something you come up with, but it's real life. You know, it's what you are going through. It's what, you know, people want to know about you and your and what you're doing and maybe back then it was a little bit different people were scared of the word cancer don't you think it's a different time now we're talking I, I, about
1: I do. and I, I think with a lot of um, uh, awareness people now realize you can get cancer from anything a genetic mutation to you know uh, pesticides who knows but it's it's still a stigma where you, you, you can, I don't know anybody who wants cancer right you know, but I. It, but it was also very different and difficult because I didn't want it to label me. You know, and kind of, kind of tongue in cheek. I didn't. I didn't want to say. Um, you know, cancer had me. I had cancer. You
0: know? Right, I know. <laughs>
1: Looking at it that way.
0: It's true. I. You know what? If you think about it, it's instead of saying, you know, I had cancer. You could always, you know, cancer didn't define me, and that's why you didn't want people to look at you. And I can, I'm just speculating, but did you not want people to feel sorry for you, or is is that part of it? I, I think so. Yeah,
1: that that actually might be it. You know, I, I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. Yes. And I wanted I wanted people to like me for who I was, not what I went through. Because growing up in a small town, everybody knew my business. Everyone was there
0: to support me. It's like I. I appreciated that, no doubt. But I I kinda wanted to live a normal life. Right. I totally understand that. So when you graduated Westminster, uh, what did you decide to do? Let's get into your I can't wait to hear about all your accomplishments.
1: Well, I applied to a bunch of different schools, was accepted into a bunch of different schools, and then I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, you know, the the really high-altitude Florida state that is down there, Um, (laughs) and I was studying for my doctorate in counseling psychology to follow my goal, but... I just, I just knew something was off. You know how you, you kind of, you have a feeling sometimes. Your gut, your instinct tells you something's just not right, and it just didn't feel right.
0: You were by yourself. Now, your parents were okay with you being gone by yourself.
1: Yeah, at this time, yeah, I left. Um, I left Ohio, drove all the way down, whatever, a thousand miles maybe, um, down to Jacksonville, Florida. And again, no one knew I had cancer down there either.
0: Now, you, your hair grew back and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It grew back. It grew back thicker and
2: darker and gray. All all sorts of different colors.
0: Right. So then, when you're in Jacksonville, what do you mean you do what you were feeling out of sorts?
1: Well, <laughs> looking back at, I'll, I'll, reach, I'll ask that I answer that with a question. Looking back at your life. How many times have you made a decision, you knew the decision wasn't right, and it came back to bite you in the butt later on?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there saying yes. When I made that decision to go down there, I just knew something
1: wasn't right. It just, it fell off. And I I think it was because I wasn't following my personal core values. I wasn't following what mom and dad instilled in me as a, a moral and ethical Midwest guy. Because I was working, I was I was working at a uh, the largest club in Jacksonville as a bartender. Because I bartended my way in the summertime and, through college, and it just there were a couple of different things that happened there that just wasn't me. Right. So then I, I, I decided okay I'm gonna drop out of school and figure it out.
0: Good for you. You have, you know you know it's like you said when you have that instinct. And you know you're at a place or you're surrounded by just people or an area where you're like, you know what, this is not my home. This is not where I want to be right now. Good for you. So what did you do after that?
2: Well, that's,
1: it was right, right around the time my brother was graduating from college. So he's three years younger than I am. He went to Allegheny, so north of Westminster. Okay. And he came down and lived with me for a while and he and I just had a couple conversations and I decided, okay, well, and, and this was, actually, let me back on it. It was before he moved out. What happened was I took the first deep, hard look into the mirror and ask some really difficult questions you know a lot of people don't do that because they're afraid of the answers right and I I ask myself long and hard you know who are you you, know, you ask anybody that question, Who are you? Like, oh, you know, I'm a mom, I, I work here. I do this. I do, I'm a dad. I do this, I, I, whatever. I have two kids. That doesn't answer the question. You know, who are you? Oh, you know, i'm I'm Sean Swarner. No, that's that's still not answer the question. Go deeper. peel back those layers.
0: right. I like that. peel back those layers. you You should. I wish I would have known that a long time ago.
1: Well, it's not easy because like I said, a lot of people, uh, they don't want to know the answers or they're, they're afraid of the answers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But once you know what those answers are, you can start becoming happy in life, like genuinely happy because now
2: you know what you value and now you know that you're going to be making decisions based on what you want, not what
1: others want for you.
0: Hmm you're speaking my language I feel like you're speaking to me right now Sean <laughs> okay I'm gonna have my own confession we'll do another podcast on that <laughs> so you just knew and then you said to your brother like we gotta get out of here we gotta find our way
1: yeah, mm-hmm. I, I told him, look, it, it, it was it was the first time I really thought about how cancer affected me. Like, anybody who goes through anything traumatic, it affects you. It, it, it can potentially change your, your direction in life, your perspective, whatever it might be. But again, you can choose how you want it to change you. Right. So. I, I wanted it to change me in a positive way, and I wanted to embrace what happened to me. And looking back at it, I literally wanted—I didn't know at the time—but I, I wanted my pain to become my my purpose.
0: Hmm. Geez, all the things that you're saying—pain to be my purpose—I love that. Yes. Good for you. So your attitude—you really got like—you're you right. A lot of people may—I'm—I'm—I can't really say because I haven't had cancer, but. You know, when something like that happens to you, a lot of times you may want to just crawl into a hole and just kind of and feel not feel sorry for yourself, but feel like you know what, I I can't do anything. I have this monkey on my back, or you know, something on my back where it's it's bringing me down.
2: That absolutely,
1: and, and, and you know, looking at where I am now in life, that little monkey in your back, I call it a gremlin. Yes
0: see we're, we're 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 speaking our 80s the gremlins
1: <laughs> i call it a gremlin and i think there are there are four main things that hold people back oh, and it's, let um, me write this down John. G-A-I-L. <laughs> g-a-i-l so it's a gremlin assumption uh, interpretation and limiting beliefs
0: assumption okay yeah how'd you and come it, up with that how did you come up with that
1: well, I've, I've done a lot of studying, and I've also um, taken classes, and I've, I've been a, a life coach and a professional coach and an executive coach. And, uh, throughout the years, I've learned a lot of things.
0: Right. And, so that's the thing. Tell us about like, you know, getting into life coaching. What made you turn? Like, what did you do after you decided you know, Florida wasn't the way? Did you start thinking, you know what, I want to be a life coach, I want to give back to other people, or how did you make that transition?
2: the coaching
1: thing hasn't even, didn't even come about until about five five six years ago okay and the reason being because I've, I've been busy traveling you know, around the world going on adventures and expeditions and pushing the the limits and the pushing the envelope of the human body and the human mind um, because when I was in Florida I came up with the idea that I wanted to give back to the cancer community and provide people with hope and because that's one thing that, that was very difficult to, to find when I was going through it because no one really talked about cancer when I was, when I was sick. I, I didn't really know too many survivors. You know, the hope wasn't alive. Right. And I've, I've realized that you, you really can't survive without hope. So I, I wanted
2: to do something, yeah, you can't at all. So I, I wanted to do something big to really help people with that. And it's not the, the idea and the concept of, oh, you know, I, I hope I win the lottery or I hope this happens. It's just the
1: concept of having that, that faith, that hope in yourself.
2: Right.
1: And I, I kept doing research and found that, you know, I, I literally wanted the highest platform in the world to scream hope and after doing research my brother and I found that no cancer survivor had ever climbed Everest before and I was like okay well that's that's it.
0: That was on your bucket list you said I'm doing it <laughs>
1: That's it. We moved, moved, moved from uh, Jacksonville, Florida and uh, to Colorado we literally were homeless for a couple months living on the back of my Honda Civic and camping in the middle of Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado
0: oh my gosh the story I mean come on let's have a movie this is like <laughs> wow the things that you've gone through so that's amazing I mean how do you train for something like that well, Utilizing the concept, and this is true for
1: life, utilizing the concept that, um, shoot, I'm totally blanking on it right now. Um,
0: well, we were talking about how you trained for getting up on that mountain.
1: Yes, that, oh, because I, I understand that consistency is more important than intensity.
0: Oh, my God. Now i got to write this down. Sean, you just keep coming with these <laughs> quotes. <laughs>
1: Just write a quote. Well, what what you do every day is more important than what you do on, like, Thursday for an hour. Right. Because it's just like building building muscles, you know, working out or training for a marathon. You know, if if you're running for five hours every Thursday, you're not going to get in shape to run a marathon. You build up to it. So to train for Everest, I did something every day to build up to the point where my body could handle it. Okay
0: So how did Like did he film it Did you let anybody know You were doing this Like how did people find out
1: Well The most difficult part Was actually Because climbing Everest Is not a cheap endeavor mm-hmm. You know And it's it's not like You go to Travelocity.com And book a vacation To Nepal <laughs> To go up Everest,
2: to Everest
0: I know so, I don't even know Where it is Like I'm still I'm just Jenny From the block here In Pittsburgh <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's north northeast of India, just
1: below um, Tibet, which a lot of people think is China. But I won't get into politics. I think it's Tibet. I, I, I did something every day to train for it. I reached out to sponsors. Like my office at the time was literally a, a, pay, a payphone bank in the library. Oh my! It was, we didn't even have any place or anyone to help us out. So I reached out to a hundred different corporations and one finally decided to say yes. And uh. I, I sold everything I owned. I followed a dream, went over and, and literally after moving to Colorado, eight, nine months later, I was standing and at the foot of Everest looking up to the highest mountain on earth.
0: Wow. What was the temperature like?
1: You know, Temperatures on Everest can go anywhere from 80 to minus 50. <sighs> you know, it, it can go from 80 to zero degrees in five minutes.
0: Did you think that this was going to be a challenge? I mean, you, with you having one lung that functions, you were determined to do this. I was determined to have fun. I was determined to go as high as I possibly could, but I wasn't going to put myself in in,
1: in any added risks because I I knew uh, when I left my dad hugged me and I remember him saying in my ear we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice
0: (laughs) that's true (laughs) (laughs) that's true but you're like you know what dad this is what I'm doing I gotta do
1: this but I wasn't gonna take any any stupid chances I wasn't gonna take any any chances uh, any unnecessary risks
0: do you have pictures of you climbing it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, pictures of me climbing, pictures of me on the top, pictures of me, videos of me going over the crevasses uh, on ladders. You're going to have the, to send the, that. The mountain was insane.
0: Because I'm sure my listeners are going to want to see that. So when you were climbing it, you're all by yourself.
1: I At, at base camp was my brother. So to, kind of, to kind of paint a picture of, of what it looks like to climb Everest, You hire a bunch of, well, you hire an expedition company, essentially. That's where you first start. And with that expedition company, you get a ton of
2: Sherpas. And Sherpas are the local indigenous people who a lot of people think they're genetically different but because they handle the altitude so much better than, than everybody else. They've lived in altitude for, you know, generation after generation, and you you get
1: the Sherpas. They are literally the ones who make it possible for everybody else to climb. Oh wow! Um, and just, just well, just just like going through cancer, I couldn't have gone through it without or gotten through it without oh, having a good messes, team. Yeah. So I couldn't climb Everest without putting together a good team.
0: Exactly. Yes, that's so true. So
1: at... Absolutely. So at base camp I had my brother and a cook at base camp and on the mountain we had two Sherpas and myself. And that was it. Normal expeditions you can have thirty or forty different people. A number of cooks, a number of sirdars, a number of sherpas, a number of guides, a number of this, that, the other thing. Wow. We were literally on I was gonna say a shoestring budget, but we didn't we were on a velcro budget. We didn't have <laughs> shoelaces. <lenses.
0: laughs> hey, I'm gonna be using Velcro soon. <laughs> Don't am good. Oh, my. well, let, let's finish the story of Mount Everest. And then what we're going to do is we're going to wrap this podcast up. And then we're going to do another one to get into all the other things. But yes, let's talk. Okay, so give me the... I'm, I feel like I'm like watching this series and I need to know what's going to happen next. But yes, tell us. Uh, so what did you wear for this, Sean? Like, Was there certain gear you had to wear?
1: That's a, great, that's a great question, and it depended on the day, you know, but layering was the biggest thing. Um, and a lot of people don't understand how long it really takes to climb a big mountain like Everest. I got to base camp April 8th, and I summited May 16th. Okay. So let let that sink in for a uh, That's, what, a month and a half?
0: You said April 8th?
1: And I, yes, April 8th, and I summited May 16th. Have you ever gone that long without taking a shower? <gasps>
0: Sean, oh my, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to know.
1: <laughs> well, actually, kind of a, a, a side story when, when I finished the seven summits, which we'll talk about later, which is the highest mountain on every continent.
2: All right. I finished with Denali up in Alaska, and um, ESPN was there. <sighs> and
1: my mom and dad were there, and ESPN was doing a whole story. And it was really funny because my mom, when I was hugging her, she said two things. One, I could finally sleep because I'm done with the seven summits. And two, I smelled you before I saw
2: you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the aroma. <laughs> because you had yeah. to stay there, kind of camp out there to get used to the um, altitude? Or, or Why did you stay there and not go anywhere? It,
1: exact, it, exactly. So we, we um, on the south side, going up through Nepal, we established four different camps. So there's base camp and then camp one, two, three, and four. And you do that for two reasons. One is when you leave base camp to go up to say camp one, you go up with a full backpack, you drop the stuff off, you come back down with an empty backpack, you rest a little bit day, two days, wait for the weather. Then you go back up again with more gear in your backpack. So you're kind of shuttling things up higher up the mountain and establishing these camps. And it does two things. One, it helps you, your body, get used to the altitude. Because if, if we left from wherever we are right now in the States or anywhere else in the world, if we could somehow magically show up on the top of Everest because there's a third of the oxygen up there, we would be dead in a matter of minutes.
0: <gasps> I didn't realize that. Yeah. So when you, when you establish these different camps going up, you slowly go up the mountain.
1: And in that period of, of a month, your body actually starts making more red blood cells and hemoglobin to be more efficient in altitude.
0: Oh wow! Okay, wow.
1: So I'm... this, and the second, the second reason for doing that is to establish those camps to slowly go up the mountain. So it, it, your body is adjusting to the altitude, and you're also taking gear that you need and food and everything up the mountain with you.
0: Okay, and you're doing this by yourself.
1: With the two shirts. Okay. so there are three in the team going up the mountain.
0: Okay, and you're—I'm visualizing you climbing this mountain. Like, is there like a rope, and that you're, or is there something that you're putting into the mountain to climb? I'm so confused. Like, I don't know any of this. I'm, I'm newbie. <laughs> there are a newbie. A lot of people, when you say that you're, you're a mountaineer, you're an alpinist, you're a mountain climber, they instantly think of the sheer rock face, right, where people are climbing, they have the
1: rock walls, the climbing gyms. Yes. It's, it's not like that. It's more along the lines of glaciated peaks, where you have crampons, which are metal spikes that you attach to the bottom of your boots so you can walk on the ice, so you have to get purchase on it. They have two front points sticking out and then um, eight other ones, so four on your heels and then four underneath the ball of your foot.
0: How do you so walk in those? Again. I, Sorry? How do you walk in those? You're, you're climbing this mountain.
1: It carefully, very carefully and slowly, yes. and then an ice axe in the other hand. So as you're slowly going up the mountain, you know, you're, you're just very mindful and aware of where you're putting your feet. Because literally there are, there are a couple spots on the mountain where if you take a wrong step two inches in one, the wrong direction, you can tumble a mile down a glacier. You know, <laughs> a 45-degree
0: 40, sheet of ice. I give you credit, Sean. I can't imagine. So it, t- it literally took you how many days to get up there are you talking about that April 8th to May 16th that was oh okay it took yeah, you a so month up, up
1: and down and up and down and up and down and up and down the mountain
0: oh my gosh I bet you were like in great shape well the, the funny thing is when you're in altitude like that it's like the best diet you can imagine you can eat as much as you want of anything you want and you still lose weight so huh. I'm, I'm roughly 6'2 188 pounds. I came back weighing 150. Oh, jeez. Maybe I yeah, need to so. go there. <laughs>
1: That's terrible.
0: Um, but no, I mean, I can't even imagine this. Okay. So you're, you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And did you ever say, I, I'm not going to do this? I can't do this.
1: A few times, but... Knowing what the underlying purpose was Kept me going However, there was a point at Camp 3 On a sheet of ice That was a 45 degree angle We call it bulletproof ice Because it's so hard And I went to sleep that night, after eating a dehydrated um, fed beef stew, you, know, you, you I'm sure you've seen it. You, you pour the hot water in there, and the, the you know the, the spiral noodles, the the round green peas, the cubed orange carrots. Right. I ate that around say six, seven p.m. I woke up in the morning when the sun came up again, maybe eleven hours later, and I just had this this uncontrolling Urge to vomit, without getting into, without getting too descriptive. I remember I unzipped the tent, I threw up everything, and I could still see those spiral noodles, the peas, and the carrots. So my stomach didn't digest anything. Oh my gosh! And that happens when you get in altitude,
2: sometimes. Because your blood, it's really crazy what happens to the human body, but your blood
1: pulls back. It recedes from the appendages because you can live without your arms and legs, right? Right. So it pulls back from there to surround your vital organs like your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, and stuff like that. That's what was happening to me. And I was um, suffering a mild form of high-altitude-induced cerebral edema, basically high-altitude-induced swelling of the brain.
0: Oh, jeez. So what did you do? Well, I I stayed, and this was on our way up for the summit. I was supposed to wake up that day, go to Camp 4, rest there, and then go up for the summit later that day, or later that evening. And what happened was I couldn't physically go, so I, I slept there and I stayed there for an entire
1: day and extra night on oxygen. You know, just an oxygen bottle, oxygen canister Kind of like a scuba diving tank But it's more like a spun fiberglass So it's much, much lighter And I was breathing on there And I woke up a day and a half later I was, I was perfectly fine But this is where it kind of goes back to Me surviving those two cancers Because I think I have a fleet of guardian angels Working on overtime to keep me, keep oh, me alive Yes, yes
0: absolutely <laughs> so, I, I believe that too
1: absolutely so everybody else who left the day I was supposed to they went up to camp four they went for the summit bad weather came in they retreated off the mountain and they they lost their opportunity
2: to climb because
1: you you basically get one chance at this you get one weather window because you use up your oxygen I came down with this brain
2: swelling I couldn't physically leave I woke up the next day after that went up to camp four the weather was perfect all the way up Okay.
1: So if I wouldn't have been ill, I wouldn't have made the summit.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. See, you do you. Sometimes, like I'm thinking, you got miracles, got, like to, that are just watching over you. Okay, let's let's get you the uh, brain swelling so you don't have to endure this weather and you can keep going. So after Camp Four, I mean, was that when you? Weekend.
1: Yeah, so we went up to Camp 4, rested at Camp 4, uh, and our goal was to wake up at 8 and leave around 9. We slept through our alarm clocks, woke up at around 10, I think, and everyone's hiking through the night. And I remember it was so crazy because we were two hours behind everyone
0: else going after the summit push. And because we're climbing in the middle of the night and everyone's on a fixed rope at certain points— it was almost like when I looked up at the 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 ridge of Mount Everest, it was like a string of white Christmas lights. Hmm, that sounds pretty.
1: Because everybody had their headlamps on, it was it was beautiful. And I remember radioing to my brother down at base camp that we better get going because we're two hours behind the last group so we ended up catching the last group we unhooked from the fixed rope climbed around the the train of people clipped back on the fixed rope we did that over and over and over again and eventually I became the third person that season to to climb Everest when people told me initially it was physiologically impossible for someone with one lung to climb the highest mountain in the world
0: Mm -hmm. you proved them wrong (laughs) I guess you did
1: it was like the proverbial middle finger, like I I
0: got this. Yes, take take that. So when you okay, I'm visualizing this. So you get up there. You're finally getting up there. What are you what are you looking at right now? Like I wanna see through your eyes. You're looking up and you're almost there at the top.
1: So it was really it was beautiful because when you're up that high, and I remember looking out both sides, you know there was a knife ridge where it literally dropped off two miles into Tibet and a mile and a half into Nepal on my left side, and it was just a sea of clouds and mountain peaks as is islands. And I remember looking at it a little bit further, and because of how high I was in altitude, when the sun was coming up, the horizon wasn't flat. I could see the I could literally see the curvature of the earth.
0: <sighs> you just gave me the chills that's amazing it was unbelievable and then I, I, I got to the top I collapsed to my hands and knees I bawled my eyeballs out and I pulled out a, a flag that was from my chest pocket that I had the whole time I was climbing and I unfurled this flag and on the flag were names of people who'd been touched by cancer <sighs> Oh, that's so nice and you put that up there or you waved it I left that flag up
1: there. So going back to finding a deeper purpose for your actions, the every single time I, I was doubting myself, and every step I took on the mountain, I had that flag and I had a reminder of my goals and my purpose for making it up there.
0: So it wasn't just for me; it was for everybody. It was everyone touched by cancer? We were all on top of the, of the of the world together. Oh, that's amazing! I, that's so inspiring just to hear that. I give you so much credit. But, I mean, you never looked down. You just kept going.
2: But
1: there's, there's no point in looking back unless you want to see how far you've
2: come.
0: That's true. That's true. I love this. We are we are going to have a stay tuned for the next part of Sean's Warner because I really want to get into some other achievements you have accomplished, and I also want to talk about your books. So we're going to wrap it up for this first podcast. And I thank you so much for being so open and honest with us and telling us your story, Sean.
2: Well,
1: I, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. But every, everyone has a story. Everyone has issues that they've overcome. You know, there's The only difference between me and somebody else is I might have a
2: warmer jacket.
0: You know, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, and you guys can't see him, but one long going up to mount everest i mean amazing so we'll stay tuned for another episode with sean coming soon this was spill with me jenny d take care thank you so much for joining me with spill with me jenny d you can be anonymous planning on having guest speakers And let's have a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear from you guys. Oh, I'm so excited. This is still with me, Jenny
2: D.